3: I learned later that he'd spoken to a couple of members, and one of them he had told this person that he believed that Sid Fillery and Jonathan Rees had actually been involved in the Belmont auctions robbery, that it was a setter.
1: Untold. The Daniel Morgan murder. The most investigated murder in British history.
4: 30 years ago, a private detective was brutally murdered, and it still hasn't been solved. I'm Peter Dukes, and I'll be exploring how one man and his family began to unravel the truth. He
3: didn't trust the Metropolitan
4: Police to deal
3: with it, and he was either going to go to an outside force or go to the press about it.
4: If you think we have incorruptible police, if you think we have a free press, if you think we have accountable government... When you hear this story, it'll make you think again.
1: Untold, the Daniel Morgan murder. If you haven't heard this story, ask yourself, why?
4: Welcome back to the third podcast of the Daniel Morgan murder. And a brief recap on what's happened so far. In episode one, we learned about Daniel's family background, his work as a private investigator, and the events, including the Belmont car auction heist in the year before his murder. In episode two, we followed the family's reaction to the news of Daniel's death, and particularly Alistair's suspicions about Jonathan Reese, Daniel's business partner, and the misinformation he seemed to be spreading. When Alistair shared his suspicions with the one policeman he knew and thought he could trust, D.S. Sid Billery of Catford CID, he was forced out of town. And then, the shocking revelation in the Daily Star on the 4th of April, 1987.
0: Three cops held in I murder inquiry. Three detectives were being questioned last night over the gruesome axe murder of Daniel Morgan. The 37-year-old father of two was found in a pub car park with a hatchet embedded in his skull. Detectives Sergeant Sidney Fillory and Constables Peter Foley and Alan Purvis were arrested in dawn swoops on their homes. When I'd been told about the arrests, I'd bought
3: all the newspapers and I'd found out in the Daily Star it had all the names and details, and uh, they'd arrested Jonathan Rees, his two brothers-in-law, Glenn and Gary Vian, three police officers, one of whom was Detective Sergeant Sid Fillery. I was absolutely astonished by this. My sister told me that it was Sid Fillery who'd been ringing the house after the murder, trying to get me out of London.
4: Sid Fillory was obviously quite a charmer. Before he was interviewed by him, Alistair thought Fillory was the only policeman he could really trust on his brother's murder squad. Fillory managed to persuade the grieving Morgan family that he would move heaven and high earth for his good friend Daniel and successfully urged them to get Alistair out of town because he was muddying the waters and hindering the investigation. Laurie Flynn, who co wrote the canonical work on police corruption in the 1980s with Mike Gillard, the Untouchables spent lots of time in pubs drinking with Fillery and remembers him well. Sidney
5: Fillery's a big Toby Jug of a man is how I described him in
4: our book. He's like a big Spaniel as well, with large jaws. He had very large hands, and he liked to he liked to laugh, Fillery. He liked to tell a story and laugh hugely. ...had his own story, and they were usually worth the laughter. So Fillory, Rees, the Vian brothers, Foley and Purvis were all arrested in April 1987 on suspicion of involvement in Daniel Morgan's murder. Now, all six men were involved in the Belmont car auctions heist. Do you remember that? In March 1986, after five trouble-free runs, transferring cash to the bank, Rees had been mugged outside his house and liberated of £18,000 in cash. However, within a month, the directors of the auction house had started civil proceedings against Southern Investigations because the robbery looked like a scam. Alistair had mentioned this to Fillory as a potential motive for the murder weeks ago, without having realised the detective had set up the job. Now we know Daniel was talking of exposing police corruption in the weeks before his murder. Was this, the Belmont car auction House, the corruption and the motive for his killing? Well, the police were certainly suspicious enough to make the arrests on that basis. But the two other policemen involved, Foley and Purvis, had already informed their superiors they had been moonlighting within a month of the heist. So the idea that Daniel could have threatened their jobs is pretty flimsy. Or what about the money? £18,000 is quite a lot, even more so in the 1980s. But bear in mind, Daniel and Reese were running a successful business with a turnover of more than £200,000 a year. Daniel had reportedly found his share of the money to pay back Belmont in their civil action. Is £18,000 really enough of a motive to kill someone? Well, the police certainly didn't think so. I spoke to my mother immediately
3: afterwards and she'd obviously been in contact with the police and she told me that they'd all been uh, released without charge, all in a state of complete turmoil.
4: This would be a pattern for the next two decades at least. The family would be the last to know about some police action, and often when it was too late. On this occasion, by the time the Morgan family knew about the first arrests of suspects for Daniel's murder, they were already released. If the Belmont auction heist wasn't the motive for the murder, and moonlighting police officers really doesn't seem big enough, was there something else? A much bigger instance of police corruption that Daniel was going to expose. Now, we know there are already two elements involved in the Daniel Morgan murder. We have private investigators, and we have police, potentially corrupt police. But there is a third element, and that is the role of the media, particularly Britain's best-selling newspaper, The News of the World. Rupert Murdoch took over The News of the World in 1969 and used it as a bridgehead to create the Daily Sun newspaper, take over the Times newspaper groups and eventually provide the finances to go over the Atlantic and establish the Fox Network. And we have a very specific connection to News of the World and the Daniel Morgan murder at exactly this moment of the arrests in April 1987. And that connection is a certain man called John Ross. Have a listen to this, an excerpt from Nick Davis's book, Hack Attack, which explains the relationship between John Ross and News of
6: the World reporter Alex Marinchak. His former colleagues say that from the mid-1980s, Marinchak was a prime user of the former detective who I had come across when researching Flat Earth News, who'd been pushed out of the Metropolitan Police after a corruption scandal and reinvented himself as a conduit for bribes from Fleet Street to serving officers. His name, published here for the first time, is John Ross, known to News of the World journalists as Rossi. Marinchak and the ruddy-faced former cop formed a powerful alliance, drinking together at the Old Rose on the highway in Wapping, going to police Christmas parties, which are said to have been awash with drugs and prostitutes, setting up stories with serving officers, even paying some officers to moonlight for the paper by doing surveillance on targets, or appearing as backup when a reporter got into trouble in a crack house. The former colleagues claim that with Rossi's help, police officers were being paid left, right and centre. It was all against the law, but nobody cared.
3: When I was told that a guy called John Ross had been in the incident room at this particular time, and that it had caused some problems in that the, uh, the officer who allowed him into the incident room had been disciplined as a result of this. Now, I knew nothing at all about this until more than 20 years afterwards.
4: Why is this important? Ex-cop working for News of the World in the Morgan Murder Inquiry before the arrests of Fillory and Reese. Well, there are three worrying aspects to this. First, ex-cops with press connections shouldn't be privy to highly sensitive murder investigations, especially ones involving police officers. Ross could have inadvertently leaked stuff out or accidentally tipped the suspects off so they could cover their trails before the police raids. More concerning still is the allegation that Daniel was actually selling a story before he was murdered to News of the World. Whatever happened there, his scoop about police corruption never made it to the pages of the Sunday tabloid. And what happened to it? Was he murdered before he could blow the whistle? Or was he compromised by his talks with the newspaper if they happened? Did the scoop somehow leak out? And finally, all these worrying aspects of media involvement take on a much more ominous overtone, with the benefit of hindsight. Looking forward, the relationship between Jonathan Rees's detective company Southern Investigations and News of the World would soon get closer still. Here's Marjorie Williams, a bookkeeper who started working at the firm within days of Daniel's murder, talking to Adrian Goldberg from BBC Radio 4's the Report about the early days of the relationship.
7: My job at Southern Investigations was part-time bookkeeper. I'd gone there because a friend asked me to help her out. I went down to see them and met the office manager and um, started the following week.
6: So just how important was the news of the world to Southern Investigations?
7: The news of the world really was the biggest customer. We used to invoice out maybe five to 600 invoices a month, but all of the invoices were for only for £50 or less. Generally, when you generate invoices, you actually send them to an accounts department and then somebody in the uh, system will give the okay that they're okay and they're not fraudulent and that they're to be paid. Whereas with the case with the News of the World, all the invoices were hand-delivered to a man at News of the World, not to the accounts department, and he would release an invoice to be paid now and again so that they didn't all go through in one lump.
6: So who was the man that they were hand-delivered to at the News of the World?
7: Alex Marichak.
4: Now, Alex Marinchak has consistently denied ever having heard of Daniel Morgan until the murder. And that would figure with the evidence so far. John Ross went to the murder room. He started working with the company after the murder. But there is some evidence that Marinchak may have known Daniel before. Here's Brian Madigan, the former boss of both Reese and Daniel before they set up their own company, in conversation a few years ago with a private investigator who will play his own part in this saga later on, Ian Hurst.
1: I'm looking for some, some
5: I suppose, uh, some pointers in regards to Alex Marinchek. Did, did Daniel mention anything? <laughs> Go on. I, I, I have heard of the name. Yes, yes. It, Dan, Daniel was a compulsive talker.
2: Right.
5: He talked to the wall, if necessary, to get an audience. And that, that name was mentioned.
2: Did you believe in
5: O'Brien? Well, why not? <laughs> it's, uh, um, I, I mean, he, he probably exaggerated things. But, um, I, mean, I, I mean, I've told the police many times that, um, I mean, he came to me in a state of wild excitement on one occasion, ferreting um, out what public house I was using at the time, right. saying, it's, uh, I'm going to make a fortune, I'm going to make a fortune, I'm going to expose police corruption. And I thought, you are a silly fellow. So I read this little section out. It says, I can now confirm that I believe this paper to be the news of the world as Daniel Morgan's contact was a Mr Alex Marinchak, who still until recently worked for the news of the world. Yeah, that's
4: true. We think there was a connection between private investigators' sudden investigations and Rupert Murdoch's best-selling news of the world before Daniel's murder. But there were definitely multiple connections afterwards. And even if Alex Maranchak had never heard of Daniel, as he says, until the murder, the News of the World journalists seem to have no compunction with working with the murder suspects, recent fillery, for the next two decades. So we have an idea who Daniel might have been selling the story of police corruption to. But what was the story about? Well, there's a lot of choice in south-east London in the 1980s. The memory of one man... A rather important man in this story, former Detective Constable Derek Haslam, is quite specific. He remembers talking to a friend of Daniel's about selling a story of police corruption.
5: Yeah, it's, it's, it's not totally clear, but I, I recall, it's the first time it was mentioned, and uh, it was in the curry house in uh, Thornton Heath, and we just met up for a meal. And he just came out in conversation about he had this, uh, this story he was going to sell to the press regarding serious police corruption. And I said, Well, what's it involving? And he, his response was, It revolves around, and I, this is virtually verbatim, smuggling cocaine from Miami into the uh, UK by police. And then he went on in the conversation, and I said, Well, you know, what's that involved? So he said, It's going to be overseen by three. Three senior police officers and two corrupt, we didn't say corrupt, he just bent customs officials. Alan Holmes was someone who was usually in drink at that time, so a lot of it, you know, sort of of tended to sweep over your head. But what he said about going to the press, I remarked here, I said, well, that's a bit dangerous, isn't it? You know, you could uh, come unstuck. And he's what he mentioned, he said, well, Daniel's going to do the negotiations.
4: Taunton Heath is where Southern Investigations had their offices, and DC Alan Holmes, nicknamed Taffy because of his Welsh background, was part of that circle of cops and private investigators who lived and socialised in the pubs, clubs and Masonic lodges of South East London. He was a detective on the Serious Crime Squad based in Tottenham Court Road and in 1987 was working on a drug deal. Part of Holmes's surveillance included one of Reese's brothers-in-law, Gary Veer. There are several sources who say that it was Taffy Holmes who had found the major story of police corruption that Daniel was going to expose in the press. And there are allegations, which we'll find out more later, that Daniel Morgan and Taffy Holmes were sitting in a room with Alex Marinchak trying to sell the story.
0: Daily Express, 3rd of August 1987, police chief in probe, a top police officer's millionaire lifestyle is being investigated by Scotland Yard while he is on leave. It is linked to a drugs investigation which led to a detective shooting himself last week and now a detective colleague he blamed in a suicide note going in fear of his life.
4: Later, that summer of 1987, Alan Holmes would make the front pages of the tabloid press like his friend Daniel Morgan, when a few months of Daniel's murder. He was also dead.
0: DC Holmes, 44, was not under any suspicion, but before shooting himself at home in Croydon, South London, wrote a note to his wife saying he couldn't stand the pressure being put on him to inform against senior colleagues.
4: It's worth noting that Alex Marinschak, the crime reporter for News of the World, who allegedly had met with Daniel and Taffy over their story, was all over this suicide.
0: News of the World, 16th of August, 1987. Yard Throw Party for Suicide Cops Lover, by Alex Marinchek. Senior policemen laid on an amazing party for the secret girlfriend of the suicide cop, Alan Taff Holmes, after his funeral. Top Scotland Yard men comforted Holmes's grieving widow, Lee, and her two sons at the service. Then they invited villain's wife, Jean Burgess, to an unofficial wake at the dead cop's favourite pub. Holmes, who was the master of the manor of Benchstrom Masonic Lodge in South London, shot himself in the garden of his house near Croydon last month.
4: Remember Daniel's murder, all those suggestions of a disgruntled lover or jealous husband? Well, an affair would turn out to be an even more ludicrous motive. In the case of Alan Holmes's violent death, it's not even mentioned in his suicide note. We're going to devote an entire episode to the second violent death in the summer of 87, episode 6. So more will be explained then, and you can always read up in the meantime on our website, www.untoldmurder.com. Six weeks after Daniel's murder, the investigation team decided to make a public appeal for more evidence and helped film a reconstruction that was broadcast on BBC One's famous true crime programme, Crime Watch which regularly featured wanted criminals or called for more witnesses in high-profile crimes. So, the Morgan family settled down to watch in their respective homes.
5: It's just over six weeks now since a private detective called Daniel Morgan was found dead in a car park of a pub in South London. It was gruesome, he'd been killed with an ax. The police described the case as a sticker.
3: In other words, it's one they just can't solve. It was painful watching Crime Watch. Nobody from the BBC had made any contact at all with any member of the family. And then suddenly this Crime Watch programme comes on and immediately I could see that something was wrong because of the way Daniel was represented. I mean, they showed him walking down the street with a very, very pronounced limp. Daniel had a club foot, but if you didn't know him well, you wouldn't notice. He he walked just like anybody else. You wouldn't
10: notice. You would hardly notice that my brother had a limp. Only when he was terribly tired or he'd been driving all day and his back because there was this little slight difference in the length of the two legs. And the actor who was portraying Daniel was limping along in this sort of semi-hideous way. And I remember thinking, well, They're trying to get the public, you know, Mm. with this portrayal... Did you see this man? Well, nobody who'd seen Danny would have thought that's the same person. That is the man I saw.
4: This is weird. A
10: reconstruction
4: broadcast to millions and the portrayal of the murder victim is unrecognisable. Well, what on earth went wrong? It
3: appeared that all of the information about his movements and his character and all the rest of it had been taken from Jonathan Reese and Sid Fillory. I remember one cut, one, one scene where there was a picture shown of a window with a, a lighted window in the dark with what appeared to be a woman sort of... Behind this, behind a neck curtain, some kind of as if, and, and uh, Daniel watching it as if he was some kind of peeping Tom.
4: If the Crime Watch reconstruction wasn't bad enough, there was another provocation in August 1987. Five months after the murder, Daniel's body was released for burial by the coroner. Though the family wanted him cremated, he couldn't be, in case the body needed to be exhumed for further forensic examination. He was also placed in a special coffin for that purpose. The grimness of the occasion wasn't improved by the arrival of Daniel's hearse.
10: A a pub had commissioned a harp with a broken string, or pub called the harp, and the undertakers had mounted this enormous floral harp on top of the hearse, and it looked like something from the Notting Hill Carnival. Or my mother said... It's significant, a harp with a broken string is significant of sorrow. I was
3: one of four people who knew Daniel, who was carrying the coffin, and we took it up into the chapel. Outside, I remember seeing Jonathan
10: Rees smoking. He was along the road, smoking a cigarette. Rees was there. I did we didn't speak with him at the funeral, or I remember he was there. I can remember Brian Madigan standing under a tree with, with um, Tony Pierce, you few know innocent people from the office.
4: Well, it now appears that the full heart placed on Daniel's hearse was something of a grim and malicious joke. The heart was actually a pub attended by Reese and his brothers-in-law, the Vians. Now, sources allege that in the weeks before his murder, Daniel had gone to the heart pub to remonstrate with the brothers over their role in the Belmont car auction heist. Well, this wasn't the only way Reese and his associates would continue to taunt the Morgan family.
0: Daily Mirror, 13th of August, 1987. I am not axe murderer. Private Eye raps hunt cops. Private Eye, Jonathan Reese told police today, leave me alone, I'm no axe killer.
4: Here we go again. That third wheel to this story of police and private investigators, the media they were possibly involved with Daniel before the murder and certainly close to sudden investigations afterwards. What's clear now in retrospect, looking at press coverage over the summer of 87, is that Reese was already placing stories to his advantage in the press, protesting his innocence and threatening to sue the police for wrongful
0: arrest. Now Reese, 34, plans to take legal action against murder squad officers in a bid to clear his name. Reese also claims police have turned their back on leads he has given them. They have totally ignored all information that would lead to their line of inquiry, apart from myself. Daniel was overzealous at times in the performance of his duties and made enemies, but we had a professional relationship and a partnership flourished. An axe, similar to the murder weapon, was found in a drug dealer's den in South London, he claims.
4: Some of this press briefing was exposed during the inquest the next year, when another police officer... D.C. Duncan Hanrahan gave evidence under oath that Reese was so incensed by his arrest that he targeted the lead investigating officers of the first Morgan murder inquiry.
0: Guardian, 14th of April, 1988. Private detective spoke of framing inspector... A private investigator was so unhappy about being arrested in connection with the axe murder of his partner that he spoke of planting drugs in the car of an investigating officer and getting a journalist to write that the detectives were constantly drunk. Mr. Reese expressed a great desire to harm the reputations of Superintendent Douglas Campbell and Detective Inspector Alan Jones and spoke of his desire to have Inspector Jones fitted up, said Mr. Hamrahan. He was going to have something planted in Mr Jones's car. He never said what, but I got the impression he was talking about drugs. Mr Reese told him of allegations that Inspector Jones was having an affair with another officer's wife.
4: D.C. Hanrahan will turn up later again in this series. But first, let's be clear about what he said in court. He claimed Reese was planning to fit up the police officer who arrested him, Detective Inspector Alan Jones, the second in command, on the Daniel Morgan murder inquiry. Well, this would have destroyed Jones's career and possibly derailed the already flagging murder investigation. And it's not as if this drug fit-up was a hollow threat. This is something that Reese would actually be charged and prosecuted for
0: 13 years later. Croydon Advertiser, 14th of April 1988. Part of the article would claim that Jones and Campbell were constantly drunk.
4: It was also said in court... That Reese had a friendly journalist who would plant these destructive stories in the press, but no one seems to have investigated who that was. It's like no one investigating this allegation that they were selling Daniel and Taffy a story to the press for £250,000. These are strange oversights to me, given what was at stake. Compared to Reese's skillful and well connected media campaign that year after the murder, Alistair was hitting a brick wall. On the anniversary of his brother's murder, he came to London, but was stood up by a journalist at the Today newspaper and had a strange encounter with a journalist from the Sunday Times at Wapping who was paranoid they might be overheard. Well, he might be. By this point, Rhys and Fillory were regular visitors to Rupert Murdoch's News HQ, according to Marjorie Williams, the bookkeeper, taking cash payments from the news of the world. Remember the cop, Derek Haslam? We heard from him earlier. He was a friend of Taffy Holmes and was talking to him about Daniel negotiating selling a story. Well, the day after the anniversary of Daniel's murder, Alastair Morgan met Derek Haslam for the first time, but in some rather strange company.
3: There was somebody that I knew that I wanted to see and I was looking around and it was near the near my brother's office and I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll check out the Victory, the pub near to my brother's office. And I remember I walked in through the door and there, this was about noon, I think, and there standing at the bar was Jonathan Reese. and the whole place went quiet, you know? I thought, uh, I just thought, what, what the hell am I going to do now, you know, and and I just thought, I'll I'll play it very cool, and Reese said to me, oh, hello, Alistair, how are you, uh, fancy a pint or something like that, so I thought, well, oh, what do I do, so I said, yeah, okay, so I went up to the bar and he was, and we had a drink, and he was with a man, and he introduced this man to me, and he said, oh, by the way, this is Derek. And I said, hello, Derek. And it was rather a difficult situation. And Rhys very quickly said, oh, I've got to go back to the office for a few minutes. I'll be back in a minute. And he left the the pub and I was left at the bar with Derek. And uh, I remember I said to him, I said, "Uh, you're keeping bad company, I said to him, because I believe that man was involved in murdering my brother. And then quite soon, Rhys came back into the pub and Derek very cleverly switched the conversation over to house prices in Hampshire while we were standing at the bar. Well, anyway, Reese got back and I thought, well, I don't want to be hanging around here. And I said to him, uh, John, I want to talk to you. And I took him aside. We went right over the other side of the bar and sat alone at a table. And I said to him, John, I said, you're in, you're in deep shit. And he then started ranting I suppose is the best way of describing it he was he was saying, but you don't know about this Alistair you don't know about the the drugs from Italy and you don't know about this and you don't know about that and I said to him very quickly I said look John you've had a whole year to tell me about this and you've said nothing to me and I think at that point he said, well, you can come back to the office and I can explain it to you. I can show you. And I, and I think I said, no, I just said, look, you've had a whole year to explain this to me, John. And I remember I got up and I, I just walked out and I, I walked up the road to a phone box because nobody had mobile phones in those days. And I, I phoned the murder squad and told them what had just happened. And I said to them, look, if you want me to wear a wire and go into the office, I'll do it. But they said, no, 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 no. They said, stay where you are. We're coming over straight away. And I believe also that I told them about Derek, about meeting Reese in the company of a man called Derek. Anyway, they were, the, the squad car came over and they were over in Thornton Heath like a flash.
4: A month after the anniversary of Daniel's death, and nearly a year since the arrest of Fillory and Reese, the inquest into the murder of Daniel Morgan was finally opened at Southwark Coroner's Court by Sir Montague Levine. As we'll see in the next podcast, this would be one of the most extraordinary inquests in post-war British history. But even before it opened, at the doors of the court, Alastair was told some extraordinary news.
3: I was told, as we were going into the inquest, that Sid Fillery was actually working with Jonathan Reese at Southern Investigations.
1: Episode three was produced by Peter Jukes and Devi Amir. Soundtrack by Shemali Mir, a Flame Flower production. With special thanks to Esquire. London's young Welsh male chorus.